Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Jennifer Thompson. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, and David Oakley, investment correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at Barclays restructuring plans. We'll discuss bank stocks. Could they outperform all others over the next decade? And finally, we look at the possibility that the European Parliament could put a cap on bankers' bonuses as talks on EU banking reforms enter a potentially decisive week. But first, Barclays restructuring. The biggest news last week was Barclays Chief Executive Anthony Jenkins laid out much-awaited plans to reinvent the e-bank after a series of scandals, including LIBOR and PPI, presenting his vision of a bank doing well financially and behaving well. Daniel, can you run us through the restructuring and tell us, is it credible in terms of the returns investors would expect over the next few years? Well, the share price last week definitely reacted very positively to the strategic announcement by Anthony Jenkins, the CEO. But as the dust settles a week on, I would say people are looking at it and asking the question whether this is actually more than just a drive to repair Barclays' battered image in the wake of the scandals they were involved in, whether this is really a decisive restructuring. And there are some doubts about it. Basically, what Anthony Jenkins has presented is, apart from the talk about the ethical problems and bringing Barclays back on track to become a more socially accepted bank, he said he would cut 1,800 jobs in the investment bank and 1,900 jobs in the retail banking operations, particularly in, in Southern Europe, where Barclays has been loss-making. If I, if I compare that to what some of the other global banks are doing, I would say it's sort of a normal overhaul of a bank that in terms of the headcount reductions and the strategic steps, it isn't really a massive step forward. It's similar to what other banks around the world are doing as well. 
So Bar Cup will remain a very important part of the business. And of course, there were some nips and tucks to the uh, retail and commercial side, particularly in Europe, but for Barclays customers on the UK high street, not all that much has changed. Dan, were there, there were some surprises in the businesses they chose to exit. Mr. Jenkins took a scalpel to about four businesses, I think, of the 75 lines he, he looked at in detail. What were those and what does that signify? The main business lines they're exiting are really business lines that are either socially not any longer acceptable or they are on the fringes. So what Jenkins did was he looked at 75 business lines and out of those 75 he exited four. The main one being the Structure Capital Markets Unit, which is the tax avoidance units that that helped clients to pay less tax, uh, corporate clients and institutional clients. And this was actually sort of hidden from the public uh, in the past 10 years or so, this unit. They never really disclosed the profits or anything, but at times it was a one of the biggest contributors to the investment banking profits. So it was a highly lucrative business, very small business in terms of the, the staff levels, but it was highly lucrative. And and he said he would close that down. And that's obviously due to the public pressure on, on these things. The question is, how much of this sort of advice will the bank still give in other parts of the business? I mean, Anthony Jenkins was quite clear in saying that that's not going to be our focus. We're not going to offer that as part of our normal product offering. But we'll We'll have to see. Just finally, Dan, I mean, ever since uh, he took over as chief executive in August, Mr. Jenkins has been a pains to try and present Barclays in a different way after the LIBOR scandal, of course, and talk about, you know, new ethical standards, new codes of conduct at the bank, that kind of thing. How difficult will this be to introduce across the group, of course, around 140,000 employees across the world? It raises questions over how far culture or mission statement determined at the top can filter down. What questions are people asking there? The main question is, you can't change a culture at the bank within one or two years. I mean, that's something that will take really five to 10 years. And I think that's the sort of time frame in which Anthony Jenkins' success or failure will be measured in. It will be the next five to 10 years, both on the, the question about the culture and whether he can change, particularly on the investment banking side, the, the culture there that, that has prompted some of the scandals that Barclays was involved in. But also, frankly, there's the big question on the return side. Investors are asking whether his growth assumptions and revenues assumptions are not maybe slightly too optimistic and whether he'll be able to achieve the modest return on equity target he's given himself of around 11.5%. So that's 11.5% by 2015. But nevertheless, Barclays was rewarded with a boost to a share price when the restructuring was announced, well trailed though that had been. And investors also appear to be feeling more positively towards bank stocks in general at the minute. Isn't that right, David? That's right. I mean, I think the turning point was last summer with the Mario Draghi put when he said he'd do everything he could possibly do to ensure the the euro didn't fail. Since then, most European banks have seen increases of more than 100%. Barclays around 113% rise since July last year. So investors like banks, and many have gone overweight over that period. The views are divided, though, on whether they can continue rising. It, in short, depends on whether you view the banks as a value stock in terms of they are cheap still, their share price to tangible 
book value is still trading below one. If you look at return on equity and cost of capital, which is roughly, I think return on equity is slightly lower than cost of capital at the moment. But as long as the banks are trading below this share price to tangible book value, then that's value and that is worth a buy. Once they start to climb higher, then it depends whether you consider them a growth stock or not. On that front, I think the jury is still out on that. Sorry for the cliche, but um, we don't know. And also, it depends on the bank. Barclays is a very different bank to UBS, for example, and investors have very different views on different banks too. So in the wake of the restructurings we've seen uh, with European banks and now Barclays in the past few months, from where you're sitting, are banks a good long-term bet? I would say it does depend on the bank, but if you've got a bank with a good plan, if you like, and I've heard this from a, a number of fund managers. Let's take UBS, a bank that is strong on wealth management, a bank that has made vast job cuts and a bank that is concentrating its investment banking operations on equity. They think that's a clear and a good model, and that model might deliver. Barclays, on the other hand, most investors are impressed with Anthony Jenkins, but he is making a lot of promises, a lot of promises that Bob Diamond made last year, whether he can actually produce a return on all equity of the levels that he said he could last week is, is really difficult to know it would be it's it's looking into the crystal ball really i suspect that some um, uh, investors at this stage will continue to hold barclays and buy barclays while it's cheap but really they really want to see some progress on on what was promised last week i think a lot of people are still slightly skeptical of whether that is achievable and how much attention will they be paying to bonuses because of course we're entering the time of year when that is under the microscope again i think this year most investors think actually banks won't be in the spotlight like they were last year last year the bonus story was very much on the banks whether it's bob diamond or, or stephen <coughs> hester even although most investors felt that was a little unfair uh, the sense is that the banks are keen to restrain bonuses. I mean, there might be a few rows and rebellions. You you can never actually tell. But what I'm hearing is that uh, the banks are unlikely to be the controversial story that they were last year on that side of things. And of course, two of the UK's biggest banks, chief executives, Stephen Hester and uh, Anthony Jenkins, have already pledged to forgo their bonuses for the past year due to an IT scandal at, at RBS. And the events over the past year at Barclays, Anthony Jenkins said it would be wrong for him to take a bonus after a fairly traumatic year for the bank. But bonuses are back again in the news this week with the possibility that the European Parliament Parliament could put a cap on bonuses. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes there? Yeah, this is a law that has been long been in the making, but it's almost been forgotten because there wasn't much noise about it. But now it's come back with force. Basically, the European Parliament has a proposal on the table and is soon going to be voting on it to introduce a cap, uh, a one-to-one cap. So that would mean that banks' bonuses can't exceed the base salary by more than 100%. So the plan is to turn that into a law for all the European Union member states. So it would obviously also hit the UK and the London-based banks if that were come into force. And what happened this week is that the French basically said they would support 
this proposal, which basically now means that with Germany also being on the side of the proposal that this looks very likely to come into force and to be passed by the parliament. So is that a foregone conclusion mm. then? No, it's actually not. The UK government obviously tries to lobby against it and they've got a compromise proposal on the table that would see only the cash part of the bonus being capped. Mm which actually wouldn't be much of a problem to most of the banks. That would be sort of doable for the banks if that would become law. But it looks as though it is unlikely. It's still possible, but it's unlikely for the UK government to have its way on that. Also because the German and the French governments are very keen to get the new capital requirements into law. And basically the bonus cap proposal is tied to the so-called capital requirements directive, the fourth one, which basically puts the Basel III rules into law. Uh, at the European level. And both Germany and France are very keen to get that passed because already Europe has fallen behind the timetable there because it was meant to be introduced at the beginning of this year. And of course, it would be very difficult for the Chancellor, George Osborne, I, I presume, to overtly lobby on this for a very a rather unpopular public cause. And what strategies could banks use if this does come into force, you know, in terms of raising fixed pay or more staff going overseas, perhaps? The latter might be difficult. It depends on how the actual law would look like. But in the current proposal, it would apply to every subsidiary everywhere around the world of a European bank. So in, in other words, there wouldn't be any avoidance strategies that they could use, at least no obvious ones, by transferring staff or anything like that. If I look at Barclays, 140,000 staff, for mm -hmm. instance, it won't hit all the 140,000 staff, simply because most of them don't actually get a bonus these days that is higher than their base salary. But the point for the investment banks in particular is that it would hit some of the crucial traders that they employ. So some of the key figures in their trading operations, which can easily get a job at a hedge fund and be paid the same or higher as he would be paid at the investment bank. So for them, it's a big problem in the sense that some of these senior traders are rewarded with easily four to five times their base salary and sometimes even more, and they might be in, in danger of losing the stuff. So what will happen for these people is that they would increase the base salary. And that obviously would be an unintended consequence from the lawmaker's perspective in the sense that we would burden banks with more fixed costs in terms of fixed salaries, which is obviously a risk when the markets go down again and they might make losses. And of course, uh, fixed costs, something banks are desperately, particularly investment banks, trying desperately to keep under control right now. This week, we have results from Raffaizen, Credit Agricole and Dexia in Europe. And on that happy note, it just remains for me to thank Daniel and David for their contributions and to you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.